Section three of the Rivals of Sherlock Holmes, Volume two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christine G. The Rivals of Sherlock Holmes, Volume two. The Problem of Cell thirteen by Jacques Futrel. Part one. Chapter one. Practically all those letters remaining in the alphabet after Augustus S.F.X. van Dusen was named were afterward acquired by that gentleman in the course of a brilliant scientific career, and, being honourably acquired, were tacked on to the other end. His name, therefore, taken with all that belonged to it, was a wonderfully imposing structure. He was a Ph.D., an L.L.D., an F.R.S., an M.D., and an MDS. He was also some other things, just what he himself couldn't say, through recognition of his ability by various foreign educational and scientific institutions. In appearance he was no less striking than in nomenclature. He was slender, with a droop of the student in his thin shoulders, and the pallor of a close, sedentary life on his clean-shaven face. His eyes wore a perpetual forbidding squint, the squint of a man who studies little things, and when they could be seen at all through his thick spectacles, were mere slits of a watery blue. But above his eyes was his most striking feature. This was a tall, broad brow, almost abnormal in height and width, crowned with a heavy shock of bushy yellow hair. All these things conspired to give him a peculiar, almost grotesque personality. Professor van Dusen was remotely German. For generations his ancestors had been noted in the sciences. He was the logical result, the mastermind. First and above all, he was a logician. At least thirty-five years of the half-century or so, his existence had been devoted exclusively to proving that two and two always equal four, except in unusual cases, where they equal three or five, as the case may be. He stood broadly on the general proposition that all things that start must go somewhere, and was able to bring the concentrated mental force of his forefathers to bear on a given problem. Incidentally, it may be remarked that Professor van Dusen wore a number eight hat. The world at large had heard vaguely of Professor van Dusen as the thinking machine. It was a newspaper catchphrase applied to him at the time of a remarkable exhibition at chess, he had demonstrated then that a stranger to the game might, by the force of his inevitable logic, defeat a champion who had devoted a lifetime to its study. The thinking machine. Perhaps that more nearly described him than all his honorary initials, for he spent week after week, month after month, in the seclusion of his small laboratory, from which had gone forth thoughts that staggered scientific associates and deeply stirred the world at large. It was only occasionally that the thinking machine had visitors, and these were usually men who, themselves high in the sciences, dropped in to argue a point and perhaps convince themselves. Two of these men, Dr. Charles Ransom and Alfred Fielding, called one evening to discuss some theory which is not of consequence here. "'Such a thing is impossible,' declared Dr. Ransom emphatically in the course of the conversation." 
"'Nothing is impossible,' declared the thinking machine with equal emphasis. He always spoke petulantly. "'The mind is master of all things. When science fully recognizes that fact, a great advance will have been made.' "'How about the airship?' asked Dr. Ransom. "'That is not impossible at all,' asserted the thinking machine. "'It will be invented some time. I do it myself, but I'm busy.' Dr. Ransom laughed tolerantly. "'I've heard you say such thing before,' he said, "'but they mean nothing. Mine may be master of matter, but it hasn't yet found a way to apply itself. There are some things that can't be thought out of existence, or rather which would not yield to any amount of thinking.' "'What, for instance?' demanded the thinking machine. Dr. Ransom was thoughtful for a moment as he smoked. "'Well, say prison walls,' he replied. "'No man can think himself out of a cell. "'If he could, there would be no prisoners. "'A man can so apply his brain and ingenuity "'that he can leave a cell, which is the same thing,' "'snapped the thinking machine. "'Dr. Ransom was slightly amused. "'Let's suppose a case,' he said after a moment. "'Take a cell where prisoners under sentence of death are confined. "'Men who are desperate and maddened by fear.' would take any chance to escape. Suppose you were locked in such a cell. Could you escape? Certainly, declared the thinking machine. Of course, said Mr. Fielding, who entered the conversation for the first time. You might wreck the cell with an explosive, but inside a prisoner you couldn't have that. There would be nothing of that kind, said the thinking machine. You might treat me precisely as you treated prisoners under sentence of death, and I would leave the cell. Not unless you entered it with tools prepared to get out, said Dr. Ransom. The thinking machine was visibly annoyed, and his blue eyes snapped. Lock me in any cell, in any prison anywhere at any time, worrying only what is necessary, and I'll escape in a week. He declared sharply. Dr. Ransom sat up straight in the chair, interested. Mr. Fielding lighted a new cigar. "'You mean you could actually think yourself out?' asked Dr. Ransom. "'I would get out,' was the response. "'Are you serious?' "'Certainly I'm serious.' Dr. Ransom and Mr. Fielding were silent for a long time. "'Would you be willing to try it?' asked Mr. Fielding finally. "'Certainly,' said Professor Van Dusen and there was a trace of irony in his voice. I have done more asinine things than that, to convince other men of less important truths. The tone was offensive, and there was an undercurrent strongly resembling anger on both sides. Of course it was an absurd thing, but Professor Van Dusen reiterated his willingness to undertake the escape, and it was decided upon. To begin now, added Dr. Ransom. I prefer that it begin to-morrow, said the thinking machine, because... No, now, said Mr. Fielding flatly, you are arrested, figuratively, of course, without any warning, locked in a cell, with no chance to communicate with friends, and left there with identically the same care and attention that would be given to a man under sentence of death. Are you willing? All right, now then, said the thinking machine, and he arose. Say, the death cell in Chisholm prison the death cell in Chisholm prison. And what will you wear? As little as possible, said the thinking machine. Shoes, stockings, trousers, 
and a shirt. You will permit yourself to be searched, of course. I am to be treated precisely as all prisoners are treated, said the thinking machine. No more attention and no less. There were some preliminaries to be arranged in the matter of obtaining permission for the test, but all three were influential men, and everything was done satisfactorily by telephone, albeit the prison commissioners, to whom the experiment was explained on purely scientific grounds, were sadly bewildered. Professor Van Dusen would be the most distinguished prisoner they had ever entertained. When the thinking machine had done those things which he was to wear during the incarceration, he called the little old woman, who was his housekeeper, cook and maid-servant, all in one. "'Martha,' he said, "'it is now twenty-seven minutes past nine o'clock. I am going away. One week from to-night, at half-past nine, these gentlemen, and one, possibly two, others, will take supper with me here. Remember, Dr. Ransom is very fond of artichokes.' The three men were driven to Chisholm Prison, where the warden was awaiting them, having been informed of the matter by telephone. He understood merely that the eminent Professor Van Dusen was to be his prisoner, if he could keep him, for one week, that he had committed no crime, but that he was to be treated as all other prisoners were treated. "'Search him,' instructed Dr. Ransom. The thinking machine was searched. Nothing was found on him. The pockets of the trousers were empty. The white, stiff-bosomed shirt had no pocket. The shoes and stockings were removed, examined, then replaced. As he watched all these preliminaries, the rigid searched and noted the pitiful, childlike physical weakness of the man, the colourless face and the thin white hands, Dr. Ransom almost regretted his part in the affair. "'Are you sure you want to do this?' he asked. "'Would you be convinced if I did not?' inquired the thinking machine in turn. "'No.' "'All right, I'll do it.' What sympathy Dr. Ransom had was dissipated by the tone. It nettled him, and he resolved to see the experiment to the end. It would be a stinging reproof to egotism. "'It will be impossible for him to communicate with anyone outside?' he asked. "'Absolutely impossible,' replied the warden. He will not be permitted writing materials of any sort. And your jailers, would they deliver a message from him? Not one word, directly or indirectly, said the warden. You may rest assured of that. They will report anything he might say, or turn over to me anything he might give them. That seems entirely satisfactory, said Mr. Fielding, who was frankly interested in the problem. Of course, in their vain fails, said Dr. Ransom, and asks for his liberty. You understand you are to set him free. I understand, replied the warden. The thinking machine stood listening, but had nothing to say until this was all ended. Then, I should like to make three small requests. You may grant them or not, as you wish. No special favours now, warned Mr. Fielding. I am asking none, was the stiff response. I would like to have some tooth-powder. Bite yourself to see that it is tooth-powder, and I should like to have one five-dollar and two ten-dollar bills. Dr. Ransom, Mr. Fielding, and the warden exchanged astonished glances. They were not surprised at the request for tooth-powder, but were at the request for money. "'Is there any man with whom our friend would come in contact that he would bribe with twenty-five dollars?' asked Dr. Ransom of the warden. "'Not for twenty-five hundred dollars.' 
was the positive reply. "'Well, let him have them,' said Mr. Fielding. "'I think they are harmless enough.' "'And what is the third request?' "'I should like to have my shoes polished.' Again the astonished glances were exchanged. This last request was the height of absurdity, so they agreed to it. These things all being attended to, the thinking machine was led back into the prison from which she had undertaken to escape. "'Here is cell thirteen, said the warden, stopping three doors down the steel corridor. "'This is where we keep condemned murderers. No one can leave it without my permission, and no one in it can communicate with the outside. I'll stake my reputation on that.' It's only three doors back of my office, and I can readily hear any unusual noise. "'Will this cell do, gentlemen?' asked the thinking machine. There was a touch of irony in his voice. "'Admirably,' was the reply. The heavy steel door was thrown open. There was a great scurrying and scampering of tiny feet, and the thinking machine passed into the gloom of the cell. Then the door was closed and double-locked by the warden. "'What is that noise in there?' asked Dr. Ransom through the bars. "'Rats. Dozen of them,' replied the thinking machine tersely. The three men, with final good nights, were turning away when the thinking machine called. "'What time is it exactly, Warden?' "'Eleven-seventeen,' replied the Warden. "'Thanks. I will join you gentlemen in your office at half-past eight o'clock one week from tonight,' said the thinking machine." "'And if you do not?' "'There is no if about it.'" CHAPTER Two. Chisholm Prison was a great spreading structure of granite, four stories in all, which stood in the centre of acres of open space. It was surrounded by a wall of solid masonry eighteen feet high, and so smoothly finished inside and out as to offer no foothold to a climber, no matter how expert. Atop of this fence, as a further precaution, was a five-foot fence of steel rods, each terminating in a keen point. This fence in itself marked an absolute deadline between freedom and imprisonment, for, even if a man escaped from his cell, it would seem impossible for him to pass the wall. The yard, which on all sides of the prison building was twenty-five feet wide, that being the distance from the building to the wall, was by day an exercise ground for those prisoners to whom was granted the boon of occasionally semi-liberty, but that was not for those in cell thirteen. At all times of the day there were armed guards in the yard, four of them, one patrolling each side of the prison building. By night the yard was almost as brilliantly lighted as by day. On each of the four sides was a great arc-light, which rose above the prison wall and gave to the guards a clear sight. The lights, too, brightly illuminated the spiked top of the wall. The wires which fed the arc lights ran up the side of the prison building on isolators and from the top story led out to the poles supporting the arc lights. All these things were seen and comprehended by the thinking machine, who was only enabled to see out his closely barred cell window by standing on his bed. This was the morning following his incarceration. He gathered, too, that the river lay over there beyond the wall somewhere, because he heard faintly the pulsation of a motor-boat, and high up in the air saw a river-bird. From the same direction came the shouts of boys at play, 
and the occasional crack of a battered ball. He knew then that between the prison wall and the river was an open space, a playground. Crisholm Prison was regarded as absolutely safe. No man had ever escaped from it. The thinking machine, from his perch on the bed, seeing what he saw, could readily understand why. The walls of the cell, though built, he judged, twenty years before, were perfectly solid, and the window bars of new iron had not a shadow of rust on them. The window itself, even with the bars out, would be a difficult mode of egress, because it was small. Yet, seeing these things, the thinking machine was not discouraged. Instead, he thoughtfully squinted at the great arc-light. There was a bright sunlight now, and traced with his eyes the wire which led from it to the building. That electric wire, he reasoned, must come down the side of the building not a great distance from his cell. That might be worth knowing. Cell 13 was on the same floor with the offices of the prison, that is, not in the basement, nor yet upstairs. There were only four steps up to the office floor, therefore the level of the floor must be only three or four feet above the ground. He couldn't see the ground directly beneath his window, but he could see it further out toward the wall. It would be an easy drop from the window. Well and good. Then the thinking machine fell to remembering how he had come to the cell. First, there was the outside guard's booth, a part of the wall. There were two heavily barred gates there, both of steel. At this gate was one man always on guard. He admitted persons to the prison after much clanking of keys and locks, and let them out when ordered to do so. The warden's office was in the prison building, and in order to reach that official from the prison yard, one had to pass a gate of solid steel with only a peephole in it. Then coming from that inner office to cell 13, where he was now, one must pass a heavy wooden door and two steel doors into the corridors of the prison, and always there was the double-locked door of cell 13 to reckon with. There were then, the thinking machine recalled, seven doors to be overcome before one could pass from cell 13 into the outer world, a free man. But against this was the fact that he was rarely interrupted. A jailer appeared at a cell door at six in the morning with the breakfast of prison fare. He would come again at noon, and again at six in the afternoon. At nine o'clock at night would come the inspection tour. That would be all. It's admirably arranged, this prison system, was the mental tribute paid by the thinking machine. I'll have to study it a little when I get out. I had no idea there was such a great care exercised in the prisons. There was nothing, positively nothing, in his cell, except from his iron bed, so firmly put together that no man could tear it to pieces, save with sledges or a file. He had neither of these. There was not even a chair, or a small table, or a bit of tin or crockery. Nothing! The jailer stood by when he ate, and then took away the wooden spoon and bowl, which he had used. One by one, these things sank into the brain of the thinking machine. When the last possibility had been considered, he began an examination of his cell. From the roof, down the walls on all sides, he examined the stones and the cement between them. He stamped over the floor carefully, time after time, but it was cement, perfectly solid. 
After the examination he sat on the edge of the iron bed, and was lost in thought for a long time. For Professor Augustus S. F. X. van Dusen, the thinking machine, had something to think about. He was disturbed by a rat, which ran across his foot, then scampered away into a dark corner of the cell, frightened at its own daring. After a while the thinking machine, squinting steadily into the darkness of the corner where the rat had gone, was able to make out in the gloom many little beady eyes staring at him. He counted six pair, and there were perhaps others he didn't see very well. Then the thinking machine, from his seat on the bed, noticed for the first time the bottom of his cell door. There was an opening there of two inches between the steel bar and the floor. Still looking steadily at this opening, the thinking machine backed suddenly into the corner where he had seen the beady eyes. There was a great scampering of tiny feet, several squeaks of frightened rodents, and then silence. None of the rats had gone out the door, yet there were none in the cell. Therefore, there must be another way out of the cell, however small. The thinking machine, on hands and knees, started a search for this spot, feeling in the darkness with his long slender fingers. At last his search was rewarded. He came upon a small opening in the floor, level with the cement. It was perfectly round and somewhat larger than a silver dollar. This was the way the rats had gone. He put his fingers deep into the opening. It seemed to be a disused drainage pipe and was dry and dusty. Having satisfied himself on this point, he sat on the bed again for an hour, then made another inspection of his surroundings through the small cell window. One of the outside guards stood directly opposite, beside the wall, and happened to be looking at the window of cell 13 when the head of the thinking machine appeared. But the scientist didn't notice the guard. Noon came, and the jailer appeared with the prison dinner of repulsively plain food. At home the thinking machine merely ate to live. Here he took what was offered without comment. Occasionally he spoke to the jailer, who stood outside the door watching him. "'Any improvements made here in the last few years?' he asked. "'Nothing particularly,' replied the jailer. "'New walls was built four years ago.' "'Anything done to the prison proper?' "'Painted the woodwork outside, and I believe about seven years ago a new system of plumbing was put in.' "'Ah!' said the prisoner. "'How far is the river over there?' "'About three hundred feet.' The boys have a baseball ground between the wall and the river. The thinking machine had nothing further to say just then, but when the jailer was ready to go, he asked for some water. "'I get very thirsty here,' he explained. "'Would it be possible for you to leave a little water in a bowl for me?' "'I'll ask the warden,' replied the jailer, and he went away. Half an hour later he returned with water in a small earthen bowl. "'The warden says you may keep this bowl.' he informed the prisoner, but you must show it to me when I ask for it. If it is broken, it will be the last. Thank you, said the thinking machine. I shan't break it. The jailer went on about his duties. For just a fraction of a second, it seemed that the thinking machine wanted to ask a question, but he didn't. Two hours later, this same jailer, in passing the door of cell number 13, heard a noise inside and stopped. The thinking machine was down on his hands and knees in a corner of the cell, 
and from that same corner came several frightened squeaks. The jailer looked on interestedly. "'Ah, I've got you!' he heard the prisoner say. "'Got what?' he asked sharply. "'One of these rats,' was the reply. "'See?' And between the scientist's long fingers the jailer saw a small grey rat struggling. The prisoner brought it over to the light and looked at it closely. "'It's a water rat,' he said. "'Ain't you got anything better to do than catch rats?' asked the jailer. "'It's disgraceful that I should be here at all,' was the irritated reply. "'Take this one away and kill it. There are dozens more where it came from.' The jailer took the wriggling squirmy rodent and flung it down on the floor violently. It gave one squeak and lay still. Later he reported the incident to the warden, who only smiled. Still later that afternoon, the outside armed guard on cell 13 side of the prison looked up again at the window and saw the prisoner looking out. He saw a hand raised to the barred window and then something white fluttered to the ground, directly under the window of cell 13. It was a little roll of linen, evidently of white shirting material, and tied around it was a five-dollar bill. The guard looked up at the window again, but the face had disappeared. With a grim smile, he took the little linen roll and the five-dollar bill to the warden's office. There together they deciphered something which was written on it with a queer sort of ink, frequently blurred. On the outside was this. Finder of this, please deliver to Dr. Charles Ransom. Ah, said the warden with a chuckle. Plan of escape number one has gone wrong. Then, as an afterthought, but why did you address it to Dr. Ransom? And where did he get the pen and the ink to write with? asked the guard. The warden looked at the guard, and the guard looked at the warden. There was no apparent solution of that mystery. The warden studied the writing carefully, then shook his head. "'Well, let's see what he has going to say to Dr. Ransom,' he said at length, still puzzled, and he unrolled the inner piece of linen. "'Well, if that—what—what what do you think of that?' he asked, dazed. The guard took the bit of linen and read this. "'Epa sreot dnet ni ave to nsi si ti.' Chapter 3 The warden spent an hour wondering what sort of a cipher it was, and half an hour wondering why his prisoner should attempt to communicate with Dr. Ransom, who was the cause of him being there. At this, the warden devoted some thought to the question of where the prisoner got writing materials, and what sort of writing materials he had. With the idea of illuminating this point, he examined the linen again. It was a torn part of white shirt and had ragged edges. Now it was possible to account for the linen, but what the prisoner had used to write with was another matter. The warden knew it would have been impossible for him to have either pen or pencil, and, besides, neither pen nor pencil had been used in this writing. What, then? The warden decided to personally investigate. The thinking machine was his prisoner. He had orders to hold his prisoners. If this one sought to escape by sending cipher messages to persons outside, he would stop it, and he would have stopped it in the case of any other prisoner. 
The warden went back to cell 13, and found the thinking-machine on his hands and knees on the floor, engaged in nothing more alarming than catching rats. The prisoner heard the warden's step, and turned to him quickly. "'It's disgraceful!' he snapped. "'These rats! There are scores of them!' "'Other men have been able to stand them,' said the warden. "'Here's another shirt for you. Let me have the one you have on.' "'Why?' demanded the thinking-machine quickly. His tone was hardly natural. His manner suggested actual perturbation. "'You have attempted to communicate with Dr. Ransom,' said the one severely. "'As my prisoner, it is my duty to put a stop to it.' The thinking-machine was silent for a moment. "'All right,' he said finally. "'Do your duty.' The warden smiled grimly. The prisoner arose from the floor and removed the white shirt, putting on instead a striped convict shirt the warden had brought. The warden took the white shirt eagerly, and then they compared the pieces of linen on which was written the cipher with certain torn places in the shirt. The thinking machine looked on curiously. "'The guard brought you those, then?' he asked. "'He certainly did,' replied the warden triumphantly. And that ends your first attempt to escape. The thinking machine watched the warden as he, by comparison, established to his own satisfaction that only two pieces of linen had been torn from the white shirt. What did you write this with? demanded the warden. I should think it part of your duty to find out, said the thinking machine irritably. The warden started to say some harsh things, then restrained himself, and made a minute search for the cell, and of the prisoner instead. He found absolutely nothing, not even a match or toothpick which might have been used for a pen. The same mystery surrounded the fluid with which the cipher had been written. Although the warden left cell 13 visibly annoyed, he took the torn shirt in triumph. Well, writing notes on a shirt wouldn't get him out, that's certain he told himself with some complacency. He put the linen scraps into his desk to await developments. If that man escapes from that cell, I'll... Hang it, I'll resign. On the third day of his incarceration, the thinking machine openly attempted to bribe his way out. The jailer had brought his dinner and was leaning against the bar door waiting when the thinking machine began the conversation. The drainage pipes of the prison lead to the river, don't they? he asked. Yes, said the jailer. I suppose they are very small. Too small to crawl through, if that's what you're thinking about, was the grinning response. There was silence until the thinking machine finished his meal. Then, you know I'm not a criminal, don't you? Yes. And that I've a perfect right to be freed if I demand it. Yes. "'Well, I came here believing that I could make my escape,' said the prisoner, and his squint eyes studied the face of the jailer. "'Would you consider a financial reward for aiding me to escape?' The jailer, who happened to be an honest man, looked at the slender, weak figure of the prisoner, at the large head with a mass of yellow hair, and was almost sorry. "'I guess prisons like these were not built for the likes of you to get out of,' he said at last." "'But would you consider a proposition to help me get out?' "'The prisoner insisted, almost beseechingly. "'No,' said the jailer shortly. Five hundred dollars,' urged the thinking machine. "'I am not a criminal.' 
No, said the jailer. A thousand. No, again said the jailer, and he started away hurriedly to escape further temptation. Then he turned back. If you should give me ten thousand dollars, I couldn't get you out. You'd have to pass through seven doors, and I only have the keys to two. Then he told the warden all about it. Plan number two files, said the warden, smiling grimly. First a cipher, then bribery. When the jailer was on his way to cell 13 at six o'clock, again bearing the food to the thinking machine, he paused, startled by the unmistakable scrape, scrape of steel against steel. It stopped at the sound of his steps. Then craftily, the jailer, who was beyond the prisoner's range of vision, resumed his tramping, the sound being apparently that of a man going away from cell 13. As a matter of fact, he was in the same spot. After a moment there came again the steady scrape-scrape, and the jailer crept cautiously on tiptoes to the door, and peered between the bars. The thinking machine was standing on the iron bed, working at the bars of the little window. He was using a file, judging from the backward and forward swing of his arms. Cautiously, the jailer crept back to the office, summoned the warden in person, and they returned to cell 13 on tiptoes. The steady scrape was still audible. The warden listened to satisfy himself, and then suddenly appeared at the door. Well, he demanded, and there was a smile on his face. The thinking machine glanced back from his perch on the bed and leaped suddenly to the floor, making frantic efforts to hide something. The warden went in, with hand extended. "'Give it up,' he said. "'No,' said the prisoner sharply. "'Come, give it up,' urged the warden. "'I don't want to have to search you again.' "'No,' repeated the prisoner. "'What was it? A file?' asked the warden. The thinking machine was silent and stood squinting at the warden with something very nearly approaching disappointment on his face. Nearly, but not quite. The warden was almost sympathetic. Plan number three fails, eh? he asked good-naturedly. Too bad, isn't it? The prisoner didn't say. Search him, instructed the warden. The jailer searched the prisoner carefully. At last, Artfully concealed in the waistband of the trousers, he found a piece of steel about two inches long, with one side curved like a half-moon. "'Ah,' said the warden, as he received it from the jailer. "'From your shoe heel,' and he smiled pleasantly. The jailer continued his search, and on the other side of the trousers' waistband found another piece of steel identical with the first. The edges showed where they had been worn against the bars of the window." "'You couldn't saw a way through these bars with these,' said the warden. "'I could have,' said the thinking machine firmly. "'In six months, perhaps,' said the warden, good-naturedly. The warden shook his head slowly, as he gazed into the slightly flushed face of his prisoner. "'Ready to give it up?' he asked. "'I haven't started yet,' was the prompt reply. Then came another exhaustive search of the cell. Carefully the two men went over it, finally turning out the bed and searching that. Nothing. The warden in person climbed upon the bed and examined the bars of the window where the prisoner had been sawing. When he looked he was amused. 
just made it a little bright by hard rubbing he said to the prisoner who stood looking on with a somewhat crestfallen air the warden grasped the iron bars in his strong hands and tried to shake them they were immovable set firmly in the solid granite he examined each in turn and found them all satisfactory finally he climbed down from the bed give it up professor he advised the thinking machine shook his head and the warden and jailer passed on again as they disappeared down the corridor the thinking machine sat on the edge of the bed with his head in his hands he's crazy to try and get out of that cell commented the jailer of course he can't get out said the warden but he's clever i would like to know what he wrote that cipher with it was four o'clock next morning when an awful heart-wrecking shriek of terror resounded through the great prison it came from a cell somewhere about the centre and its tone told a tale of horror agony terrible fear the warden heard and with three of his men rushed into the long corridor leading to cell thirteen end of the problem of cell thirteen by jacques futrel part one Recording by Christine G. in Oslo, Norway, the 18th of February, 2012.